Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there, back here in the studio, Gangland Wire, and I have a one-person show today. I just found this interesting story, and, and one of our big supporters, an artist named Rob Starr. Rob, uh, this is for you, buddy. He's always asked me about Pittsburgh stories, and here's a Pittsburgh story for you. It's uh, Samuel Sam Manorino. He was a, really a prominent La Cosa Nostra figure in Western Pennsylvania for decades till he died in 1967. He worked with his brother, Kelly Manorino, and, and together they controlled most of the gambling and, and any other related activities, loan sharking, and of course, fencing goes along with that and, and bust out schemes from gamblers that, that get in too deep and insurance gigs from uh, in, from gamblers that get in too deep. You know, these, these gamblers, they get in too deep and they borrowed some money. And, and uh, as I heard him on the phone, a guy told another guy, said, you just need to get a policy. And I thought, what's that mean, get a policy? And he said, uh, you know, get a policy, man. And, and it's about it, talking about his car and he wanted some money out of it. And so about three weeks later, we found out that car had been burned. It's like, oh yeah, get a policy. And I know what, know what that means. They were, uh, they operated in the Northern part of Westmoreland County and under the uh, auspices of the Pittsburgh crime family. You know, the, the Manorino brothers, they had, they had uh, interest in uh, Cuban casino like a lot of mob guys did in the 1950s, the San Suchi in Cuba. Um, you know, Mayor Lansky kind of started that trend down there. Uh, they work under Pittsburgh mob boss John LaRocca later in their life, and and he would eventually force Sam Manonero. And Pitts, Pittsburgh mob boss John LaRocca would eventually force Sam Manorino into retirement from the organization in 1958 after he'd had few too many runs in run-ins with law enforcement and and his health was declining too probably uh, uh la roca wanted to get his rackets to somebody else more than likely but so this is 1958 and and after that he's bored only thing he's doing he's got a restaurant and he he's not really doing anything you know uh, 19 he didn't even have netflix to watch in 1958 you can go out and and eat breakfast with your buddies you know i'm a retired guy i got this podcast going, but sometimes in the winter and you, you're caught up on podcasts, you know, you find some guys to go out and, and uh, have breakfast or have coffee and sit and talk for a couple of hours, talk about the good old days. I'm sure that's what he was doing, but he wanted to talk to somebody uh, that kind of understood, I think. And, and he started talking to an FBI agent, just informal chats, uh, probably out of boredom, I would say. And, and, you know, they actually did give him an informant number and, and wrote reports on that information. Uh, now he became what my good friend has been on the show. My guy who, who maybe is kind of bored and likes to talk with me about uh, mob activities. So he doesn't really ever talk about Kansas city. So relax you guys in Kansas city. He never gives up anything about Kansas city. Uh, not that's any of uh, any good isn't already well known, but anyhow, Steve St. John, he told a story about a guy in the penitentiary and, and he called himself a professional verifier. So, you know, a verifier, 
but he never really gave up any current information on what was going on in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, and they often referred to him as a retired racketeer when they wrote, wrote reports. Uh, these were all kind of the older stories in, in 1960. And, and one of the first ones he talked about was that when he came up in the 1920s, he was a driver for the boss of Pittsburgh, a guy named Giovanni Bazzano. Uh, he ran errands for him, took him around to meet other gangsters and and, and he kind of recalled, you know, gave a description of, of Bazzano's associates back in the 20s. And he said that he described them as all having handlebar mustaches, you know, mustache Pete's, a living example of a mustache Pete. And he's, you know, he credited Bazzano for getting him started in the mafia life. Now, Giovanni Bazzano would be murdered in less than a year for taking part in an unsanctioned hit. Uh, Manorino remembered that Bizzano had called was called to New York for a sit down, and, and later he learned when when his boss didn't come back and you know he was found murdered in in New York that he learned that several guys had killed him, and and they'd used they'd hit him with about eighty ice pick stabs. He really didn't know any more about it, but he wouldn't really talk about it. like a murder. There's no statute of limitations, so even if he knew anything, he, he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna talk about that. But he did tell the agents that he felt like his boss had it coming, and uh, he really didn't seem to have any uh, pity or empathy for his mentor. Now, Manorino explained that the Pittsburgh crime family in the 1920s and 30s primarily muscled into gambling clubs, uh, and that's that was what he did and, and got a gambling action going. He, he said he and another guy named Joseph Rosa would go to owner of a gambling club and offer him a fair price for one half of the ownership, at least what he thought was fair. Now, now you know, you know that was not going to be a fair price because if the guy didn't uh, take their deal, then it was starting with intimidation. Then the next step is, of course, uh, you know, break out the windows or maybe start a little fire or put a stick of dynamite on the front porch or the front door underneath their car and, and just a little message to send that, hey, you, you need to uh, 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 give in to me and, and sell me half this club. And, and then if that didn't work, he said he would go on to breaking bones. Uh, he told one story about convincing the owner of, of one of these gambling clubs to cooperate. He went in, probably with more than one guy, and he lined up several people in the club at gunpoint and he threatened to kill them all in the style of what he called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. <laughs> you know, here these guys are using that as a threat. It's pretty interesting. It's kind of like in Chicago one time there, a, a lower level guy used the threat of calling Harry Ailman in if it couldn't get somebody wouldn't pay their debt. Uh, so, you know, kind of the, the threat of some of these other people or some of these other activities in the mob, things you've read about in the paper, you know, that 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 works, I believe. Mananero would later say that these two operators that he was trying to muscle in on broke completely and, and just pled to him, please just let us share your gambling profits with you. <laughs> and he said that they were Jewish gamblers and whenever he saw them walking down the street, they all disappeared as though they were hiding from the plague. <laughs> if he had ever admitted he took pleasure in killing people when he was young, he, he didn't really admit it. But but he did one point in time, he did say uh, offhand comment, I used to enjoy it. So who knows? I don't know. This guy's uh, he's a piece of work, just wrapping away with the agent. That would have been fun to have a guy like that. That was really that 
straightforward with it. Now, Samuel Mananero did actually admit to the FBI that he was a member of La Cosa Nostra, he said, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, the agents asked him about the Pit Pittsburgh crime boss, uh, John LaRocca, and uh, you know what he how he was connected to him. He said LaRocca did sponsor him and his brother into the organization, and uh, uh, and he said, you know, who else would have done it? So uh, he, he was kind of like cautious in sharing those details, but he did share the details of induction ceremony, and it's just about like all the rest of them, everyone I've ever seen, and and of course you know on on my podcast. Uh, Mikey Scars, Michael DeLeonardo audio, uh, audibly shares his making ceremony, which is a lot like this one. He said he, uh, he went in. Now, this was real interesting because it was one of the early people that ever did that. I, I assume, uh, uh, oh, I know uh, Angelo DeLeonardo did, but he was after that. Um, then Joe Bellacci probably uh, shared it because he was a made guy. But anyhow, he said that that he told, uh, he, he had his finger pricked to get some blood, but they didn't have any holy card and they didn't set it on fire in his hands. Um, he said, uh, he said something to the fact of, uh, the, to the effect of, you know, I never got no burns on my hands that way. Um, he claimed that, that since those earlier days when he was in the thirties or so that they hadn't conducted any uh, induction ceremonies for a long time. Um, he, he related that it was, he felt like it was an honor to be a member of Cosa Nostra. And, and after they got done, just like usual, somebody took them aside and spelled out the membership rules for them. Can't kill another member without permission. You, you uh, can only kill another member if your honor was affronted or if it's in self-defense. He uh, might be able to kill in the heat of the moment without being sanctioned, but uh, you had to be careful about that even. He said that he would have to get the permission of the boss to kill another member. He did. He said you weren't supposed to kill anybody for financial gain or just to attain power. Kind of interesting little rules they've got there. A lot of rules about killing people, if you ask me. He told his federal agents that the Costa Nostra members were forbidden from using bombs or handling narcotics, uh, making money from prostitution or counterfeiting, which I don't quite understand that. Uh, they've all handled, there's a famous ban on narcotics, but so many of them broke that. And I don't know how many of them have used bombs. And I know about the prostitution deal. Supposedly they didn't, but, you know, Lucky Luciano was convicted of it. A lot of people say he was, he was set up and railroaded, which may or may not be true. He did know a couple of mob guys that were, he was close to back in the day that did, were making money from prostitution in, in uh, New York City. So uh, you know, surely they kicked him up a little piece of the action. He talked about a recent bombing in Youngstown, Ohio, that killed a guy named Charles Charlie Caballero and his eight-year-old son. He said that infuriated him because you do not ever kill any innocent bystanders, especially women, children, or children. And this had his own, this guy had his own son with him. And actually at the same time, another informant supplied roughly the same information about, and it was an unsanctioned hit that hit this Charlie Cavallero. It must have been a bunch of young guys or some young guys that did it because he didn't really talk about the details again. He didn't give him anything to, to really, you know, go to court with, shall we say, but he did say that the bombing had forced the organization, the Pittsburgh family, to get rid of a lot of young guys. And, and so that, that indicated, and there were some killed, and he said at one point in time, he said there's about two more guys to go before this situation will be cleaned up. 
but he never would identify any particular person that was a member of the Pittsburgh crime family, except John LaRocca and his own brother, Kelly Mananero, and himself. Uh, he said there were about 30 members in the family in Western Pennsylvania, but only six were active. Uh, when asked to identify them by name, he said the FBI agent would write in one of their reports, there was no amount of persuasion to get him to identify other LCN members in Pittsburgh. Now, in regards to the boss during these later years, uh, John LaRocca, he said he had a lot of respect for him. Uh, he said everybody liked him. He was a longtime boss of Pittsburgh crime family. He described, he described him just like Nick Savella was here in Kansas City, kind of a, on the surface, a peace-loving homebody. Didn't go out to the joints, uh, didn't go to mob hangouts. You never signed with anybody except somebody was real close to him. And Nick Savello was the same way. Mananero said LaRocca brought this mindset to Pittsburgh when he came on the scene in 1942. The, uh, he said the boss before LaRocca in Western Pennsylvania was a Frank Amato from the late 30s until the 50s. Uh, he said back in those old days, he kind of had some criticism of those old guys. He said, they just sit back and count their money. You know, uh, he said, they just relied on muscle men and stooges to operate gambling clubs and they just take a piece of the action. But when LaRocca came in, he forced the, uh, the actual members to go out and do some work and, and become workers and be actively engaged in the administration of their gambling clubs themselves. Uh, he also said that LaRocca had conflict resolution skills that were way ahead of their time. He, per, he preferred negotiation and compromise rather than murder and violence. He really tried to resolve grievances without bloodshed. Mananero claimed there were fewer mob killings in Pittsburgh than other cities because of LaRocca's attitude. Mananero went on to give an example of, of how LaRocca handled different problems. There was a guy named John Costello, who was an old time bootlegger and a gambler from Western Pennsylvania. And Costello went around intimidating people all the time. And, and he used the fact that he was a member of La Cosa Nostra and that he was a close associate of John LaRocca and Sam Mananero. He said they were all offended by that. And, and he wanted Mananero himself said, I wanted to kill him. But LaRocca said killing wasn't worth the risk. You know, it's not that big a deal. LaRocca did say if Costello did anything ever to really impact their business, then he would have him killed. Costello ended up dying of natural causes not that long afterwards. So they didn't have to really worry about him anymore. Mananero, as he got older, he said he adopted LaRocca's approach for himself. He said it seemed to work better. He remembered one time he had a building contractor cheating him out some money and his brother Kelly wanted to kill a guy or at least, you know, jack him up really bad, break his legs and say, I'm break your legs as they say. Mananero claimed that he gave this swindler a pass because the amount stolen was not that small so it wasn't worth the risk. He, and here's another interesting thing he said about mobsters in Chicago and Cleveland said they're not as civilized as we are. They still like act like animals in those cities. Uh, he said, you know, he said, there's better ways of handling things than by killing. And he also, in these same discussions, they, they wrote this down, that he called Albert Anastasia an animal. And he said the former boss of the Gambino crime family should have been killed years earlier. He said, you know, he said, Anastasia's probably killed more people than you got hairs on your head. So... <laughs> Another guy he commented on was uh, Chicago Outfit boss, Sam Giancana. He really liked Giancana and must have had some kind of business connections with him. He said uh, Giancana got a bad rap when he got sent to jail for contempt charges in 1965. Uh, he called him my good friend, Mooney. 
And he said, you know, the guy had no choice but to refuse to answer those questions put to him. I mean, he can't talk. If he wanted to, he'd be dead. And he just didn't feel like that was fair. And, and I've seen that here in Kansas City. We had several young guys that they put in, in jail for a year during the, the length of the grand jury and just arbitrarily picked them up. Basically, they were hanging around the gambling club and they were seen in conversations with some of the mob guys. But I don't know how much they knew. It was a big deal. The, uh, the local Italian community, they started a movement even and started demonstrating out in front of the federal courthouse. They called it BASTA, which means enough. And, and eventually, I think they started letting him out of jail early. Talked about Vito Genovese. He said he was another friend of mine that got a bum rap. He was in prison for narcotics trafficking, trafficking in that 1959, if you remember. And he said it was on the, based on the testimony of just a low-level drug dealer who was lying. He, he said, you know, that can't be true. And Genovese could not have been dealing in heroin like they claim because, quote, we don't allow our people to sell narcotics, end quote. Ask him about a guy named Harold Konigsberg, who, who was a New Jersey mobster who had come in and, and turned state's evidence. Now, Konigsberg was Jew, Jewish and worked with the Italian mob in uh, New Jersey and New York area. And, and he talked about uh, to the law enforcement, to the, the bureau and local law, guy, law enforcement guys that he'd buried murder victims in a mob cemetery in New Jersey. Uh, Bananero said, you know, Italian mobs got similar burial, burial spots all over the country. He said, one of our biggest mistakes is telling too much to a Jewish guys we had to work with. Uh, it's a little bit of, of, of uh, prejudice there, maybe. Anyhow, a little clannishness. I don't blame you. You know, you just stick with your own kind if you can be doing something like this. He'd always operated in New Kensington, Pennsylvania, which is not in Pittsburgh. It's about 30 minutes northeast of Pittsburgh. And, and he claimed to the FBI that he didn't want to operate in Pittsburgh because it was too costly. He said uh, his organization could easily take over a lot of gambling rackets down in Pittsburgh, but there's so many corrupt politicians and corrupt police officers that wanted payoffs. And that he said, we're up to 30% that it just it took all the profit out of it. I don't know if you guys ever heard Frank Culotta say this. I heard him once, or maybe when I interviewed him, I talked about why did he go out to Las Vegas? And and he said, well, he said, you know, it's cold in Chicago, but he said, really, he, he said, you know, every time you do something, there's usually some cops stand there and want a piece of your action, or they're wanting to put you in jail. So he thought a, a fresh start away from the Chicago cops and the FBI. And, and, you know, when you stay in one city like that, the FBI starts figuring out who you are and paying a little more attention to you and, and finding informants and start asking about you. And all of a sudden, you know, somebody will give you up. Finally, uh, Sam Mananero, he lamented, as we all older guys do, I see this among policemen too. Policemen, older policemen, that when I came on, they'd all say, Oh, you've got one guy told me, he said, Oh, you new young guys coming down the street is too dangerous. I'm getting off the street. I'm going to go in and work the desk. And so we always bitch about the new guys coming on, whatever it is we're doing. And he's complaining, he's lamenting that there's a new breed of mobsters coming up in the organization. They had very little training, no proper training. They don't have the same kind of discipline we had 30 years ago. And misconduct in the past that would have resulted in a guy's murder, like stealing from another member of the organization, now goes unpunished if, if you're in enough and you're making enough money for somebody that's, that's connected enough. So it's uh, uh, 
It's a really interesting little insight into a mob guy's mind, a real mob guy. So Rob Starr, here's a Pittsburgh story just for you. Thanks a lot, folks. And, and don't forget to hit me up on the uh, Venmo app or buy me a cup of coffee or my PayPal. And, and uh, if you have any problem with PTSD, uh, you feel like Google PTSD and Veterans Administration or the VA and find their website on PTSD. And there's a hotline and there's a lot of information in there. So watch out for motorcycles and thanks a lot for supporting the podcast and the YouTube channel. And don't forget to subscribe down below. Thanks, folks.